Use our words to encourage and edify. Help us, Father, to show our love for other people in ways that bear witness to the fact that we are the objects of an incredible, eternal, unchanging love for us. And we ask, Father, that you would help us today as we now look into your word. I pray that you'd help me, Lord. I need help as we look into this text. This text is so um, valuable and so necessary and, and needful and, and important and essential. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it. And as we meditate on this verse this, this month, Lord, may this indeed be something that resonates in our hearts and emboldens us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tolerance was a word used when I was growing up to refer to a willingness to be sympathetic for another person's beliefs, another person's practices, which differed or conflicted from our own. But now, as Josh McDowell has said and many others, we live in an age of what's called new tolerance. It says that every individual believes whatever they say or whatever they believe is considered to be right and equally valid. And of course we know that that is an example of what we live in now in an age of pluralism in which it is taught that all values, all beliefs, all lifestyles, and all truth claims are equal. And one of the consequences of living in a society in which pluralism is the Uh, mindset of those who live there is the loss of conviction. In order for a person to possess convictions about a belief, it is necessary by definition for the person to be convinced of his or her belief that it is true. But if we are sincerely considering all of these beliefs of other people and their truth claims as equal to our own, which we're being encouraged to do, then we can no longer claim any genuine conviction regarding our own beliefs. And if no truth is quote-unquote more true than any other quote-unquote truth, then there is no truth worth defending. And if there's no truth worth defending, my friends, there's no room for conviction. I wonder if you have any convictions or you have any core beliefs regarding Jesus. Because so many people will disagree with what Scripture teaches about Jesus. Jesus made exclusive claims to be the only way to God. Do you feel the pressure to accommodate to the, quote, new tolerance, unquote, in our world? What do you make of the accusations made about narrow-minded Christians by those who champion religious tolerance. This morning I want you to turn into your Bible to Acts chapter 4 in the Pew Bible. If you would like to make your way there, you can turn to page 1297. And I'd like us to read the verses that lead up to our memory verse for this month, verse 12. And so I'd like us to read verses 1 through 12. And notice that Peter is speaking these words. He spoke them at a time when he was Uh, There were a number of apostles were facing persecution, strong opposition from the civil and religious authorities. Notice how all these these pressures were and and issues were revolving around 
the context of the, this statement that Peter made. Let's follow along as I read from Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came upon them, meaning John and Peter, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And it came about on the next day that their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of a high priestly descent. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Meaning they healed the man earlier, which we read about in chapter 3. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this same by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He, that is Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which you must be saved. Now as we reflect on Peter's absolute affirmation made in verse 12, Regarding salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone, I want us to draw, draw your attention this morning to three different affirmations. Number one, I want you to notice and think about the reasonableness of salvation in Christ alone. The reasonableness. Only a few weeks earlier, on the night before Jesus was put to death, if you recall the situation, the Apostle Peter had adamantly denied being a follower of Jesus in that courtyard of the high priest. But here in this passage, in Acts chapter 4, here is Peter boldly and unashamedly speaking about Jesus to the same group of Jewish leaders who had put Jesus to death. And Peter's courage was due to an obvious dramatic effect and the impact that Jesus' resurrection from the dead had upon him and all the disciples. God had raised Jesus from the dead and made it indisputably clear that the Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified in shame, who had been rejected by the Jewish leaders, had been raised from the dead, and he had overcome the forces of death. And when you add up all the evidence of Jesus' divinity that had been shown by his works of power that Peter had witnessed and seen, demonstrated, indeed, Peter was convinced. He had seen those works of power. He was convinced that Jesus alone was able to provide salvation to sinners. And the founders of all the other world religions have died. 
All the other world religions, those who had found them, they have all died and they remain in their graves to this day. But point number A, the person of Christ convinced Peter that Jesus' claims, his exclusive claims of having the ability to save sinners was because he was no ordinary human being. He could do what no ordinary human could do. He overcame death. He overcame sin. He overcame the forces of evil. And Jesus Christ was God in human flesh and was uniquely qualified to make atonement for the sins of His people. That's why this exclusive claim of Jesus Christ is indeed reasonable. Because no one matches the unique person of Jesus Christ. No one comes close. Now, second letter B, under that heading of the reasonableness of Peter to make such a claim that salvation was in the name of Jesus Christ alone, it's also because of the teaching of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus. Think about it. The Gospels record a a number of exclusive claims that Jesus made that he was the only way to God. Everyone, I'm sure here, I hope, would know. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive claim. And then to add to that, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And you could add to that the text of Matthew chapter 7, in which Jesus was talking and summarizing, concluding there in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 13 and 14. Jesus insisted that the only, there are only two gates and two ways that people can travel. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must enter through the narrow gate and walk on the narrow path. Jesus offended many people when he then declared that many people are those who enter the wide gate, which I would understand to mean the wide gate of various religions and people who follow all sorts of religious practices and religious beliefs and who travel on the wide path of quote-unquote spirituality. Yet tragically, because they do not affirm and believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they are headed, as he says in the text there, a point of great controversy and a point of great offense, I'm sure, is that they say he's head, they are headed to destruction. The wide path, the wide gate, leads to destruction. Now the writers of the New Testament heard Jesus make those statements or heard others report those statements to them, and they concurred with Jesus' teaching. And they affirmed the following exclusive claims about Jesus as the only provider of salvation. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. One mediator. There is no co-redemptrix. There's only one mediator between God and man. It is Jesus Christ. And then we read in the writings of the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. God has given us eternal life. And this life is found where? It is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. 
Therefore, and there are many other verses I could cite for you, it is reasonable to affirm that there is salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ because no one else is qualified, no one else is capable, no one else has provided credible proof that they have satisfied God's just demands and received God's approval as mediator, savior, and atoning sacrifice. So for Peter to make that statement in that situation was indeed a reasonable thing to do. And for those who are followers of Christ, it is a reasonable affirmation for us to make and believe as well. Now that leads me to the second point here in this text I'd like us to consider. The offensiveness of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Notice here Luke records a rather extensive list of opponents before whom Peter stood there in Acts chapter 4. If you take the time, you look at those verses in one, verses 1 to 11, it mentions priests, captain guards, Sadducees, rulers, elders, scribes, the high priest. I mean, it would it just list a very long, extensive indicators that we have a number of people representing the Jewish leadership there trying to silence John and Peter. And they... That's why they had indeed arrested John and Peter, was to make it so they could no longer proclaim this message about resurrection through Jesus Christ. And they provide a reason in verses 2 and 3 of the text there in Acts 4. These Jewish leaders were disturbed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, what's the big deal? Well, these Jewish religious leaders thought that their authority was being threatened by these apostles. As the apostles performed various works of power and their various forms of healing, and they attribute those healings to to the Nazarene, to Jesus the Nazarene. Nazarene means a person from out in the the country, out in the, 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 uh, away from the significant cities where important people live grow up and learn and where the centers of education are. No, he's out from the country in the boonies. It is Jesus the Nazarene and note that they had put to death as a blasphemer. They're saying that he's the one that's now showing this kind of power having been raised from the dead. It threatens their authority. And let's be honest, it's also not coincidental that they're highly offended wanting to shut them up. If you look at the, through the text here, chapter 2, verses 23, 24, Chapter 3, verse 15, and here in this text, chapter 4, verse 9, interestingly enough, Peter says and emphasizes that these leaders, he's pointing to them and emphasizing, you people, you Jewish leaders were the ones who had Jesus put to death. He says it not once, not twice, three times he directly confronts them with their culpability. Jesus predicted that his followers were going to face persecution. And sure enough, they did. And sure enough, they do. Jesus warned his disciples that the world would find that the claims of Jesus alone as the way to God would be offensive. John chapter 15, we read, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that if you, if you belong to the world system, the world would love its own. The world would embrace you. 
If you were a person who had made, you know, don't make a big deal over Jesus and his exclusive claims, the world would, would love you. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then the prediction that was made in Mark chapter 13, verses 9 to 11, listen to what Jesus also predicted he said was going to happen. Be on your guard, he says, for they will deliver you up to the courts. And you will be flogged, where? In the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Did you happen to notice verse 8 of Acts 4? Here's Peter speaking before the religious leaders, knowing that he is very likely going now being threatened and told to be quiet, having just been arrested, isn't it interesting to notice that Peter's message that he brought in Acts chapter 4, he did so as one who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He knew this was going to happen, and so by God's Spirit, he enabled him to say what he needed to say. Now, we should not be surprised by the reactions that we get from people in this pluralistic age in which we live. You see, when the champions of religious tolerance insist that all religious roads make their way up the same mountain top to God, giving legitimacy to every and all sorts of belief systems, then we need to say to ourselves, don't be caught off guard when you hear people make those affirmations. That shouldn't surprise you. Advocates of religious tolerance, unfortunately, can end up being the most outspoken opponents of biblical Christianity. We do not be surprised when, as a Christian, you're accused of being intolerant, narrow-minded, and simplistic if you adhere to the exclusive claims of the gospel and that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. The message of the cross has always been, is now, and will ever be offensive. And the exclusive claim of salvation in Christ alone is not an idea that Jesus' disciples invented. It is not something that we have tried to come up with, and therefore we are the people who are somehow showing ourselves to be superior to everyone else. Jesus himself narrowed the options of gaining access to God down to one option. John 14, 6, through him alone. And so Peter boldly affirmed Jesus' claim and he proclaimed good news of salvation through faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone to those who were relying on their own good works and in the performance of religious rituals to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. And when you really boil it all down and look at the big picture of all the world's religions, you take all the religions of the world and they essentially will fall into two categories. There is eternal life gained by relying and trusting in one's own attainment of merit by means of various forms of good works, or going and practicing certain rituals, or that summarizes 
the vast number of the world's religions, or it is relying and trusting in Jesus and His substitutionary and atoning death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Those are the two options when you boil them all down. And so, my friends, we, don't, we should not be surprised when people find it offensive. It doesn't mean they still don't need to hear it in a compassionate way, done in a humble way, done in a way that's accurately pointing them to Scripture, not just to our opinions. Thirdly, and very quickly, I want to make just several implications. I want to draw your attention to several implications. I'm going to be bouncing from these, just very quickly touching on them as I've tried to think through what's the, what's the big deal about this verse? So what? The implications of salvation in Christ alone. First of all, sincere belief. Perhaps you've heard it said by people, and it is a common belief, that God, people say, God will accept people no matter what they believe as long as they're what? Sincere. Right? You heard people say that? Sincerity, however, cannot determine whether something is true. It is possible to be what? Sincerely wrong. Faith is only as good as its object. Several years ago, I read about a nurse in a large hospital who had changed an oxygen tank for one of her patients, which is her responsibility to do. And she sincerely believed that there was oxygen in that tank. But the next nurse who came on her shift checked on that patient and found him dead. The tank had been wrongly labeled in the warehouse and contained nitrogen and not oxygen. Now, this nurse was sincere, and she still had a lot of faith in that tank and the contents of that tank, but the nitrogen still had terrible consequences for her patient. The nurse was sincere, but sincerely wrong. Now, I cannot find in Scripture that anyone ever got to heaven merely by sincerity or was accepted by God because that person was only earnest in maintaining his own views. Sincerity will not be a determining factor on Judgment Day. Only those who repent of their sin, only those who deal with a heart that is refuses to believe, refuses to yield to Christ, refuses to say, I am in need of someone to rescue me from my sin until they repent of their sin of unbelief and transfer their trust to Jesus Christ and His work on their behalf. Until they do that, they will not be saved. Relying on the correct object of our faith is absolutely essential. Second, very quickly, I'm moving through these rather rapidly. Second implication is everyday exclusivity. say, what are you talking about? Everyday exclusivity. Well, I brought an illustration here. The old famous Maglite. Maglite is a rather nice flashlight, and it contains in its handle not just two D-sized batteries, but there are three D-sized batteries in this particular flashlight. One, two, three. Now, if I want this flashlight to work, I have to put them in at a particular order. The positive goes in first, 
of the positive start of the battery goes in first, the negative here. Same thing with this one, goes in this way. And the third one has to do exactly the same thing. And then you have to put the end back in place, screw it together if you're going to see it work. It's working, right? It's very weak. The batteries are weak. I didn't change the batteries. It works. It is on, but it's very weak. Anyway, the point is this. You can take those same batteries and throw them in upside down, turn them, one goes one way, one goes this way, and this one. You keep doing that combination. And I'm telling you, there is exclusivity in how this flashlight functions. It functions if you put the batteries in the correct order of the way, and then it works. Especially if you have fresh batteries, which I didn't change. Okay. My point is that every day we find examples of exclusivity, and none of us seem to think it's a big deal, but it is a big deal every day. For example, another example. Suppose you are flying on an airline, and I would imagine you would be agreeing with me that none of you would want, if you're flying on an airplane, you want a pilot who somehow thinks he's going to fly this and land this plane, and he believes that it's just as legitimate and just as appropriate to land the plane upside down as it is the right way with on the tires. Would anyone want to live that way? Do you want to fly in a plane where the pilot says, well, it doesn't really make a difference? I think I'm going to go in sideways this time. Put the right wing down. That's where we're going in this way. No, we all live with exclusive, exclusive claims to truth every day, and we yield to them. And yet somehow in the realm of spirituality, we're convinced that every truth claim is just as legitimate as anything else. We shouldn't be surprised if there are exclusive claims in the realm of spiritual, in the spiritual realm, just as there are in the physical realm. If Jesus could have provided salvation in some other way, or if there was some other means of salvation in some other way, Jesus would not have insisted that he must die on that cross and be buried and raised from the dead on the third day, Matthew 16, 21. Jesus said in in the Garden of Gethsemane, if there is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But there wasn't possible for that cup to pass from him. He had to drink it all. He had to die on the cross. So there is only one name, only one person. And according to God's plan who has been provided to sinners like you and me, by which we must, must be saved. Now I say that to say this, my friend. If there's somebody here today and you've often toyed around with the thought of, yes, I understand a few things about Jesus, but maybe there's some other way out there. Maybe there are other belief systems. Maybe there's some other means by which I can attain something uh, and I'm not sort of bound to this Christ alone idea. My friend, let me urge you again, read the scriptures yourself. Contemplate the person of Christ. Ask yourself, is there really any other way? Where is your faith? Is it in yourself and your ability to do good works? Is it in your attempts to try to somehow improve yourself? Gain merit of of somehow attaining to things that you think will make you better stand before the ultimate uh, God who has made all things? We all must face these issues, my friend. The exclusive claims of Christ come down to every one of us. Thirdly, I want to bring to your attention a compelling mandate. The mandate to evangelize all the people groups of the world is rooted 
in Acts 4.12. The apostles and the members of the early church understood that since Jesus was the only means of salvation, that it was incumbent that they proclaim salvation through faith in Christ alone to all the nations of the world, to all the people groups of the world. Not just to people who were similar in background, those who were similarly going to the synagogues and celebrating various Jewish uh, feasts and, uh, and various religious um, uh, gatherings within the temple complex. They knew, and God sort of pushed them so that they would take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And that has not changed, my friend. There are billions of people in our world who do not and have no near neighbor who can explain to them the glorious news of the gospel. And this verse, if we memorize it and meditate upon it, ought to make our hearts yearn to say, what can I be doing? How can I be a part of this great, wonderful commission to be sure the gospel is proclaimed? There is no other way, my friend, than Christ alone. And affirming the exclusivity of Jesus Christ alone as God's only provision of salvation ought not to lead to some sort of smug feelings of superiority we might have over other people. But it ought to lead to a profound sense of deep humility and compassionate concern for the lost. So that we, along with Paul, can say in Romans 10.1, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer to God is, is for them... And their salvation, talking about his fellow Jews. He's praying for them and his heart's desire is that they know Christ. And Paul was passionate about being a part of making that known to as many people as he could. And everyone who embraces the gospel of trusting in Christ alone is to be zealous to make Christ known to those who are treading on that wide path of religious tolerance. All those whose destiny is eternal destruction. May God raise up for us a new generation of people who will not live for this world's comfort, but who will be willing to say, I'm willing to do and give and surrender and be available to whatever God would use, wherever God would assign me in his great uh, uh, global task of making known the glories of the gospel to all the peoples of the earth. And lastly, I'd like to just say that we ought to celebrate Such a great salvation. The glories of the gospel of salvation by faith alone through Christ alone ought to lead us to celebrate along with the Apostle Paul those thoughts that surfaced and culminated from reflecting upon the glories of salvation in Romans chapter 8 in which he says he reflects on the fact that eternal security is found only that Jesus Christ can provide this to us Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. Only Christ can provide that, my friend. Not your good works and not any other religious system in this world. Only Christ. And we should celebrate the uniqueness of Christ. It is Christ alone who was qualified to offer himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. In that because he was fully God, he was sinless. And he was infinite. And he was capable of paying the penalty for more than one person's sin. He could bear all that weight of sin because he was infinite as God. But he also was fully man. And as a sinless human, he was 
qualified to serve as a substitute to pay the penalty for sinful humans like you and me. And Jesus was the only one who could live live that righteous life and then die as our sin substitute once for all, and then raising him from the dead. And therefore, in order to prove that full atonement was made for our sin. Christ alone is able to save those who come surrendered to him and relying upon his redemptive work on the cross and his resurrection. So therefore, Peter's claim, my friend, in Acts 4.12, a verse I hope you will meditate on and that you will memorize and you will hide in your heart. I pray that as you think about it and ponder it, that you will celebrate a salvation that will lead us along with Paul, along with Peter, sorry, to have joy and assurance and peace and unending thanksgiving for everyone who believes in Jesus and His perfect sacrifice for sin. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we are deeply humbled by these truths today. For we know that we are just merely sinners saved by grace. We are helpless, lowly sinners who have embraced Christ as our object of our faith, who have found in Christ everything we need, who have found in Christ the only provision, the only mediator between God and man. It is Jesus Christ. And so, Father, today we do come to celebrate. Oh, what celebration our hearts Go through every time we hear the affirmation. There is salvation in no one else. There is salvation not in any of us, Lord, gathered here today. There's salvation not in any of the great religious leaders of the world, people who have started various religious uh, faiths and, and groups and sects. Lord, we thank you that it is Christ alone that causes us to celebrate here today. And so, Lord, as we gather around your table, may you, Lord Jesus, Be the one who gives us fresh sense of joy, a wonderful sense of peace in our hearts, a wonderful sense of communion we have with you, and to know, Lord, the greatness of the salvation we enjoy through Christ alone. May our time, Lord, be a sweet time of fellowship, time of celebration. May it be a time, Lord, in which we are once again humbled about how passionate are we for the gospel. How passionate are we to take our stand, to be bold like Peter, and to call us to live a holy life, fully surrendered to you. Lord, have your way with us, we pray, as we celebrate together. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.